Welcome to the Western Bowl podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled Exploring the Depth of Spiritual Tradition. The format is a panel discussion via Zoom with Barbara Dubois, longtime practitioner and teacher of Buddha Dharma, who has studied with Garshan Rinpoche, Carl Grimsman, who was introduced to the Gertrude tradition through his parents, the New York Children's Group, and connection with Mrs. March, who was a student of Gurdjieff, and Vijay Fedorshak, who became involved with the Western Baul tradition through his teacher, Lee Lozowick. The presentation occurred on September 19, 2020, and begins with comments by Barbara Dubois. I'm a person who's had a long life. I'm 80 years old, and I have been in some way consciously on path uh, from childhood, not with any sense of definition, but with a longing that I, from an early age, called the longing for truth. I didn't have another word. I didn't know what to look for or where to look. And I fumbled a lot the way we all do, but eventually came to formal path. And I want to say something about the period preceding that coming to formal path, because it characterizes how I understand path since then. I was a rebellious, I still am a rebellious kind of person. There were various things I was interested in, cared about deeply, and I didn't want to study them. I wanted to pursue them myself in my own way. And we could say that that's arrogance, uh, or we could say it's some kind of uh, naive commitment to authenticity. Uh, and probably it was an admixture of the two, an arrogant, naive uh, commitment to authenticity. So in my 39th year, I think, yeah, my 39th year, I met my first teacher on the path, first person that I was studying with in a formal way. Although in retrospect, I look back and I see many who were my teachers, but I didn't know them as such at the time. And I didn't know I was looking for a teacher. I didn't even have that concept. I wasn't brought up in an intellectual atmosphere that uh, even had conversation about such things. I went to church the way uh, my family did. And though I wasn't satisfied, I didn't know why. So for some years, I studied with my first teacher from a, a tradition that, uh, that included a Buddhist uh, perspective and some Buddhist practice. But... It wasn't until 20 years after that that I stepped fully into the Buddha Dharma exclusively, essentially, although it's never exclusive because I'm always looking, since I'm looking for truth, in, in it, I'm looking to hear the sound of truth at, at all times, so I don't really care where it comes from or what 
how it's packaged. But my practice, my training and my practice and my uh, my work as a as a lama, as a Dharma teacher, is definitely in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And um, my two principal teachers in that tradition are names that will be familiar to some of you, that my root lama, who is considered my root guru, the, who's considered to be the one who shows you the definitive true nature of mind, is His Holiness Dujim Rinpoche, who was the head of the Nyingma lineage, and he left his body. He died in 1987. Um, and my uh, principal lama in this lifetime, I would say the lama of this lifetime is His Eminence Garchen Rinpoche, who some of you know and some of you know of. Uh, he is a teacher in the Drikon Kagyu lineage of Tibetan Buddha Dharma, and uh, he has his western seat right in our backyard in, in Chino Valley, Arizona. So we're very fortunate to be studying and practicing in his radiant shadow. When I encountered the formal path of the Buddha Dharma, and I say Buddha Dharma more often than I say Buddhism because an ism is so strongly demarcating something that's created by humans, and the Buddha Dharma, the Dharma, I wouldn't say um, principally comes from humans, it comes through humans. So encountering that path Two things happened for me immediately that were striking. Uh, one was I became extremely happy. Uh, I'm not a depressive person, but I mean, we all have our moments. But uh, I, I became happy like a child somehow. I had a childlike kind of happiness in the presence of the teachers and, and of the teachings. And the second thing that happened was that the early teachings, my first exposure to the Buddha Dharma in, in this tradition, seemed to me to cast a light on and demarcate for me the naturally occurring orderly pathways of mind. That's the only way I have to explain my experience of it. The teachings made sense. And not only did the teachings made sense, they pointed to what made sense in my own understanding. So it's not as if I was dredging up stuff and clearing stuff out of the way, but the bulldozer in the mind. It was that what was naturally orderly and marked with clarity was highlighted. It, it, that became visible. So those two things, that, that spontaneously upwelling happiness and the, uh, the perception of clarity in the mind, as you can imagine, were signally uh, influential in uh, giving me tremendous confidence that I was in, finally in the right place at the right time with the right uh, teachings, the right uh, teachers. That said, I want to note that I have a strong, um, and this is something that I think others share, um, but I've been thinking about it particularly as, as we've been preparing to meet together tonight, uh, I think very much in terms of authentic path being uh, both outer and inner, and I'm, I'm sure that that's not a novel concept for any of you. The outer path is a path of form. It's visible. It's it's um, indicated by particulars uh, of characteristics. It's a path of characteristics. It has concept works conceptually, addresses conditions in the relative uh, reality, 
and uh, speaks to uh, our longing for uh, the absolute. If we have that longing, it will be spoken to in uh, some way in the exoteric, the outer traditions, as well as the inner. The formal path tends to be a path that we could call additive, in that it brings our attention to what is missing and tries to bring that into our life in some way or invite us to bring it into our life. Whether it's adopting new habits, uh, learning certain practices, following certain formal trainings, uh, sitting in a certain way, sitting in a certain kind of building in a certain way, perhaps in certain kind of clothing, and uh, maybe even adopting a kind of a new lingo, which I, I know can can happen. The, the the jargon in the spiritual world is also jargon sometimes. So that additive nature is a marker for the relative reality a consideration that formal path deals with. Uh, relative reality meaning the conditions of our lives and our minds in this reality that we find ourselves in, the reality of existence. And though it may speak of uh, the absolute or there being an absolute reality, um, it, it's more talking about it. Uh, at least this is my experience. Others will have perhaps a very different experience. But the formal path experiences that I've had tend to be talking more about the absolute than turning one towards it definitively and pointing to it and then pushing you essentially over, over the edge to uh, and enter that, 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 let's say, in, in a given lifetime, perhaps the final... The final reach, the final reach. While the inner path is not necessarily a path of characteristics, another way to speak of it is to call it esoteric or universal. The universal path, I think, is not so much one that we walk in a particular lifetime, which the relative reality path always is and may not be the same vehicle each time. But the inner path, the universal path, is what takes us from the limited to the limitless. It's the path that we follow to move from the relative to the absolute, to the ultimate, to the always and ever-changing, to the really what we call the unborn and the undying. So the inner path gives the meaning to the outer path. The outer path will always and only have its meaning from the life of the inner path, which gives rise to it. The outer path has no reason to exist if there isn't the inner truth that the um, inner path is taking us along. I'd like to read you two pieces from teachers whom I greatly uh, admire and love. The first uh, is from the great Dilgo Kinsi Rinpoche, who was a Nyingma master in the Tibetan Buddha Dharma. And he's speaking of courage, uh, the courage that it requires of a practitioner to acknowledge their longing for the absolute and to have the patience and courage to follow where that longing takes. So he calls us to the deep inner courage that it takes to be ready out of compassion to work over many eons for the sake of beings 
and to face without any fear the highest truths of the teachings, that ultimately all phenomena are totally empty by nature, that emptiness is expressed as radiant clarity, that there is a Buddha nature, a self-existing primordial wisdom that is uncompounded and an absolute truth beyond the reach of the intellect. And then if we can bow to this great master who so kindly just says it that way, that yes, there is this absolute truth. Don't let anybody tell you it doesn't exist because you can't get your hands on it. That's the longing that gives rise to the path, which is created by each one walking it. And then His Holiness Dujim Rinpoche then describes our predicament as as, uh, we find ourselves really in relative reality and needing to work out our spiritual destiny in the, in, in the relative world. He says, when we do not recognize appearance as the pure display of self-arising dharmakaya awareness, meaning the absolute, the true nature of mind, grasping comes about. Perception and form manifest and we cling to them. We also cling to the self who is grasping. Dualistic clinging takes us from our true nature, and we are left wandering in relative reality, exposed in the external world. Like it or not, we are temporarily trapped in samsaric existence. We must accept this and work toward enlightenment within the relative world until we realize that self and other are by nature without true existence, We rely on the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. These sublime three jewels have the exalted means to draw us out of samsara. So in between those two is the path. And my joy and gratitude and love are indescribable for the good fortune, the good karma in this lifetime to stumble onto it again. We have to do it every lifetime. It has to, has to be fresh in the moment, every lifetime. So in this lifetime, I am filled with praise and joy for having found the doorway to the path and having been welcomed and taken under the care of great beings, great teachers. And I wish the same for each of you in whatever way it may manifest for you in any of your lifetimes. May you find the true path to the ultimate, and may you live the relative as a committed practitioner and student and human, really aware that we are, we're all in this together, and truth and love are really the origin, the ground, and the path itself, and the fruit of the path, and we share that. Thank you. Greetings, everybody. Thank you for being here. This is such an honor. Speaking is not my natural role. Words are hard to find. The words are deep and hard to pull out. So who was Gurdjieff? He was born in the 1870s in Armenia, began teaching in 1912, following two decades of travel, seeking knowledge from Egypt to Tibet. He died in 1949 after establishing a system called the work. And so what is the Gurdjieff work? In my words, it is a system for awakening from sleep, 
to become conscious, present, for raising oneself out of automatic behavior of the machine, so to speak, and so as to establish will. And from there, to crystallize something permanent, the I am within, and so as to evolve oneself, serve others, and serve the creator. My background started early through my father. It started from the cradle. Uh, then in the New York uh, children's group from the age of five, was on weekends. We did movements. Uh, we had work weekends in, uh, on a farm. So I was brought into it, at the same time repelled by its imposition into the freedoms of my childhood, uh, yet inwardly drawn. Later in my teens, into my early 20s, I entered voluntarily into the practice at a commune under Mrs. March, the student of Gurdjieff's, and she shared his visceral style of teaching, uh, which I thought was, it was difficult but fortunate. I emerged having become what Mrs. March termed self-motivated. She did not give me that badge. Uh, that is what I came to. And it, what it means is reaching a point of dependable practice. So what is the Gurdjieff tradition? Well, P.L. Travers, who wrote Mary Poppins and who later entered the work, wrote, what is the source of his teaching? True to his role, Gurdjieff never openly disclosed it. By examining his writings and the numerous commentaries upon them, it might be possible to discover parallels in various traditions. Tantric Buddhism, Hinduism, Sufism, Greek Orthodoxy. Possible but hardly profitable, for the fundamental features of his method cannot be traced to any one source. Uspensky quotes him as admitting, I will say that, if you like. This is esoteric Christianity. There seems to be no reason to reject this when one remembers that Christianity, as Gurdjieff knew it, was the heir of the ages and must have drawn to itself elements from very early pre-Christian traditions, Hittite, Assyrian, Phrygian, Persian, unquote. So relating to this tradition, this synthesis of many traditions, I think back to when I had a moment or window of commitment to the teaching, which, as I note to myself, was 50 years ago, almost now, when I bought into the system, so to speak, said I'm on board, internally accepted, affirmed, not just Gurdjieff. And I didn't realize it then, but on later reflection, it was a palpable sensation that stayed with me of a chasm or column of space opening down into the past. I could feel Gurdjieff and those who taught him and those who taught them. And I term that tradition, the line. And I still feel it, taste it, sense it, it is a quality of being, a quality of conscious effort. 
this energetic channel back into time inhabited by souls who have come before is my support. And it has evolved into the image of the root of a tree and the trunk that gives the column form, almost as if it's the energetic wrapping of the xylem of the tree or the marrow by the trunk and the, and the root, the vascular system of the tradition. And in this analogy, the soil, I can see as being the source, the divine source by which water and minerals come up. And so what I feel and have long felt is that my allegiance, my primary, prime allegiance is to the root. And that is the the statement of all statements that I can make tonight. It is the tradition I follow and have allegiance to is the beings and the channel and the source together. And then from the root up into the sunlight, and we know that things flow down from the sun as well, but uh, we can see ourselves as leaves, the fruit which grow and also grow the root. Another image briefly to add, which I feel as well, is the idea of the well the tradition as being an underground spring or well, uh, something from which I can draw information, inspiration, solace, and strength. It is in some way converted down to me through this system of root and these these, uh, personages and these energies, which is somehow stepped down to me and made bioavailable from the prime source almost like electricity needs to be stepped down from transformers into house current where I can use it. And I will say this, music connects me like nothing else to the Gurdjieff tradition, the music. On guidance and being fed, Christopher Fremantle wrote in his book, Attention on Attention, which he was a student and became a teacher of the work. He said, people do not realize that when they work conscious forces come to their aid. Conscious forces are trying to help you. You are not alone. To that, I will say that Mrs. March has appeared to me in dreams upwards of 200 times since I left the farm. It's been a long, long time. They're rare, but special. And because her being, more than her words, were the teacher to me, Just her presence in my dreams was enough to give me new data and impressions to push me forward. And uh, to my surprise, two, two dreams this week preparing for this talk makes me feel connected and blessed. How do I compare tradition to practice, to the teaching? I see tradition as the foundation, the root and the trunk and practice as the superstructure, the branches and leaves. Tradition is the base or foundation on which my practice rests, from which it stems and grows. But I have to be honest with you that there is other influences. Uh, I am not a pure Gurdjieffian, and that tradition has been augmented by other. I have three main influences, so I'm going to mention those. The second one is the I Ching. The I Ching, which I started in uh, 1985, a deep relationship with the Book of Changes, a tool to learn to flow with the natural 
and cosmic order. It is not just a divination tool, although it is the living oracle, and it is uh, a guide to the seeker in spiritual growth. The third one was, uh, was Native American, came in the 1990s through sweat lodge and study in upstate New York with a Delaware medicine man. And during six years of ceremony and lifestyle immersion, I reached a new level of integration in my work. I came out of the sweat lodge years realizing that where the farm experience had pushed the work into my blood, the sweat lodge pushed it further into my bones. And that's why words don't come easily to me because it circulates wordlessly in me. Interestingly, bone marrow produces blood cells, so that's foundational to the vascular system. So the tradition to me feels like a a vascular system, water, blood. So to to summarize how they work together, uh, the Gurdjieff work is focused on inner life and transformation. It is an elevating influence. The I Ching aligns my movements with the cosmic clock. It is a regulating influence. And the Native American relationship with the earth and the elementals is a grounding influence. And there were and continue to be other influences. So I asked the question on this occasion, is this blasphemous? Are we talking orthodox versus syncretic, which means combining? Uh, That which Mrs. March sometimes derisively called mixing. It's a good question, I think. And But uh, I do note that in the Gurdjieff work in Mrs. March would readily and often and, and, and in depth and read the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, Herbach, the Egyptian initiate, folk tales from Mullah Nasiruddin to monkey, Chinese folk tale was read to us in the foundation as children. And in the Sweat Lodge, we sang Lakota songs, crow songs, new songs from spirit. So how to reconcile, I wonder. Well, the effect, I can tell you, of these multitudinal influences on me feels the same. It's the same chasm. It's the same root. It's the same lineages coming together from different branches of roots to the same trunk. The source is the same, the feeling, the information. So traditions can have different customs, conventions, and rituals, I would say, but at the base, is the message not the same? Is the path, the journey, the good red road, the I am the way, not the same? And I say it is if it comes from the core and it's not willy-nilly and fanciful, other terms Mrs. March used. And if it is usable to me, if it feels uh, genuine, authentic, and if I can be sure to make myself cognizant, connected, and discerning to listen, how is it working? So it can be a pure teaching, sure, but it doesn't have to be, I would say. So if tradition connects us to those who have walked before, are we not the future's ones who have walked before? How does this inspire me 
to live more in accord with the teaching. How, how do I allow that, that idea to pull me forward in the best way? Is tradition not both a connection to the past and a string that pulls me forward? The idea of service. Gurdjieff said, I serve as a channel for a flow of energy. I serve this so that energy can be transmitted to other forms of beings, to other places, to other levels unknown to me. So it's not fitting that I honor those who come before and work to ensure survival of the line, work to give a future to future travelers. Isn't it my responsibility if I accept it? If I'm called to that, doesn't it become an obligation? Don't, do I not owe it to my teachers and to my parents and to creation itself to follow and best as possible fulfill that calling, which I do feel? Am I being presumptuous to believe that I am or can be part of the lineage, the tree, the continuum of effort, knowledge, and being? No, because I will do the universe a disservice if I do not think I can fulfill such a calling. And no, how else will the bloodline live and continue to circulate? Of course, humbly, not ruled by ego, with ego in its place, of course. And so the tradition is living. It lives in me and through me. It is a bloodline of spirit, a spirit line, a living legacy. So in any moment, I can keep the teaching in the realm of practice, study its precepts with my mind, have feelings about them, or I can draw them in deeper, embody them, and become the lineage, the linkage. Lineage is linkage. So can I become a pipe carrier, wisdom keeper, placeholder, pillar, World maintainer, can I become the tree? Let me rise to that. A few years ago, I had a conversation with one of my sweat lodge companions, compadres from 24 years ago. I came out to Arizona from New York 24 years ago. And he had called me on the occasion of one of our members who had died. And we had a long conversation. And he was my apprentice, this fellow I was talking with on the phone, as a fire tender back when. And he is still the fire tender 24 years later there. What a man. When we closed, I said to him, surprising to me, and took him aback. I said, we're still connected. I said, you, you, you can call me anytime, day or night, about anything. I said, we are brothers of the living blood. Like I said, he was taken aback, and I was too. And I want to leave you with that because because it's true, and it means something to me. That is it. Thank you. I'll just say a few things that I think are important to consider about tradition, things that I learned, and then talk a little bit about the school that I'm in. I've only had one teacher, Lee Lozelik, and he died in 2010. I met him in 70, probably 76. And uh, I'm still digesting 
and probably will for the rest of my life, what I've received from him. Barbara was mentioning something about stumbling upon the path. I think that that may be karmic. They say that prana follows attention, and maybe our attention has been on the path for much more than this lifetime. And we walk into it, or we don't encounter a tradition. I took a self-development course when I was in college, and that was the first time I heard Lee's name. And then I saw a poster about him on a bulletin board at school and followed up. What I learned was more than I wanted to know about myself. I remember those days. It was somewhat painful to get in touch with what was really going on with me more. Why do I regularly feel contraction, defensiveness, some threat to what I assume myself to be? What is beyond this, if anything? Can I know irrefutably what I am beyond the relative, which dies? Well, I just kept coming around because I needed something pretty, pretty deeply. A guru, <laughs> that was not on my radar in the least. Having been raised in Catholic schools, it was quite foreign. But I came to talks that Lee gave three times a week. Well, two, two talks and then a formal meeting with him. We studied different traditions. Oftentimes, he would read from other traditions. And little by little, I got conceptually and also in my body a little more about what this is really about. In Tibetan Buddhist teaching that I've read, uh, there are slogan practices. And one of them is, all dharmas agree at one point. This impacted me to consider that. It seemed to me like despite the different angles, emphases, clothes, whatever it is that different traditions have, all dharmas agree at one point. Transformation is about, in language that I would use, surrender of ego into its rightful place in our lives. And if that happens in an ultimate way, who are we? I think we've all had experiences of that in the body. But, you know, it wasn't the teaching that had its greatest impact on me. It was my teacher. Somehow, he was, his being, his presence was constant. And his commitment and service was endless. Every week, every day, every minute, it seemed, was spent in service to others. At, the, at that moment, we thought it was about us, but really it's about much more than us. We just happened to be there at the time, fortunately for us. What was his secret? We said that there were different streams of the work. Different schools served different functions. Some were more public, some were not. Some referred to God, some didn't. But it seemed to me like there was something to learn from every real tradition. From the Gurdjieff work, he talked a lot about chief feature at one point that I can remember, you know, over the course of months. That really had an impact on me. The, the central feature of personality around which everything else revolves. And the Bodhisattva path about having courage 
there is an innate desire to serve and to share what we have received. And at the same time, no mixing. In the Baal tradition, we use whatever works in one way. So how does that make sense? It really does. Our attention, our focus, our commitment is to the path that we're on in our school. I'm not saying that's the truth for everyone. But we had great friendship. He was friends with so many different teachers of all different traditions. Buddhist, Sufi, Hindu, Christian, Gurdjieffian. Real traditions, it seems to me, uh, begin with realizers. And they teach what they've realized about the path, about who we are. And in some traditions, there are lineages of realizers. And the path, and one way of describing it in those traditions, can be about being transparent to one's teacher, who's transparent to their teacher, who's transparent to their teacher, all the way back. And that if that's the case, it's possible to access the spiritual influence of such great practitioners and, and masters. There are teachers who arise outside of a lineage. This is not a one-size-fits-all process that we're involved in. Maybe Gurdjieff was one of them, but we don't know. His background is kind of shrouded in mystery. An Indian master named Ramana Maharshi seemed not to have had a teacher. He was, I think, 16 when he had his, we don't call it so much enlightenment, as a shift in context from self-reference to other reference. So for me, I'm in college and just feeling like this is all kind of bizarre, but I cannot deny the truth of what I'm exposed to. And I'm noticing how all these traditions are moving from the East to the West. In terms of Hinduism, there's the Hare Krishnas, there's Baba Muktananda, Rajneesh, Buddhist teachers, Zen teachers like Mizumi Roshi, Suzuki Roshi, Suzaki Roshi. Sufi teachers, and it just seemed a whole time period where a lot of traditions were coming to the West. And most, if not all of those teachers have died. It seems like there was this kind of golden age where all these teachers were around who really had something deep. So what now? I don't think it's a problem. I think it's actually an opportunity. Traditions can keep us on track. I think it's extremely rare to live in an abiding, free, surrendered state. I mean, many people feel like understanding the teaching and really having some sense of it equates with that. But that's not been my experience. Probably all of us who are here tonight have had a taste, a real experience, a glimpse of what exists beyond, behind personality. But it's so easy for ego to co-opt that. It just happens. It's part of the package of being a human. And work with the teaching of a tradition helps us to stay on track. There is support for seeing ourselves more clearly, for getting back up when we fall off, and to get feedback, not necessarily verbal feedback, but just talking to someone today. I just said one little thing that I probably shouldn't have said. She probably didn't even notice it. But just being in the 
presence of someone who's doing the same kind of work, who's observing themselves, makes you realize when, oh, my ego just slipped out there. Not bad. But we work at deeper levels when we work with people involved in a tradition, whatever tradition that is. They help to keep us straight. They help to straighten us. Scandals. Oh, my God. You hear all these things that happen in different traditions, and why would you ever get involved? Well, yeah, I think it's a valid and important consideration how some teachers and practitioners have been abusive and misused power. I think we can say it directly. We don't know the inner state of the people involved in that, but I think it's right for us to explore that. But also, to me, it seems like working with the shadow parts that we don't see about ourselves is an important part of the process with our own self-deception. What isn't part of the process? Not excusing anyone's behaviors or activity, but maybe there's not anything in an absolute sense wrong. Maybe that's part of the process for the people involved to work with. So some may discount the teacher-student relationship as a result of such situations, but consider what Rumi said. Fool's gold exists because there is real gold. So about the Western Bao tradition. Wow, it's so named because of Lee's resonance with the Bao tradition of Bengal, which gets traced back to the 14th century and probably before that. But I just mentioned a few elements of that, that we have worked with as students. As I've mentioned, we have deep friendships with uh, practitioners from other traditions. I like to consider them cousins. Oftentimes, their perspective on things sheds light on something that I hadn't considered quite from that angle before. It can be very helpful, and yet not mixing for me. Integration of the masculine and the feminine. Oh, well, this is not so uncommon to consider these ideas these days, but it goes pretty deep. Bowels sometimes say that a bowel is a man and at the same time a woman. These days, you say that, and who the heck, people are probably going to get all kinds of different ideas about this. But Shiva and Shakti in the Hindu traditions are polar manifestations of a single principle, which is one in essence, but appears as two. Our Hong Sahaj Mandir study manual says that the male is identified with eternity, the female with time, and their embrace is the mystery of creation. We practice with masculine and feminine energies, whether we're in relationship or not. Receptivity, vulnerability, and clarity. Another tenet of the Western Baal path, which has parallels with the Baal tradition from India, is that realization whatever that is, occurs through the body and not somewhere else. As Lee was prone to say for a period of time during his teaching work, God does not live in the sky. The body is a microcosm of the universe. The bowels say that if it's in the universe, it's in the body. There's a lot to say about that. Creation, sustenance, and destruction are in every aspect of the universe. So. Relating with that is a very deep 
consideration, given the reality of impermanence that is spoken about so often in the Buddhist tradition. And at the same time, it seems like realizers have tremendous humor, tremendous humor. Somehow, when grasping relaxes, something else is there. And we can't make that happen. So the context of practice requires discrimination, and we deepen our understanding of that over time. And there is emphasis in the Western Baal tradition on, and the Baal tradition on beggary. Hey, when I heard that, it was not like I was all excited, sign me up for this. But there's a much deeper consideration of beggary than standing out for outside natural grocers and hoping someone will stop and give you a buck. It's gratefulness for what we receive, for what comes to us. Not trying too hard to make something happen. Accept what is as it is. And then Lee added, and act. So it's not like we're a wet noodle and whatever. There was the need for help. Lee went to interview a student of Gurdjieff's back in the 70s. Right now, the name is escaping me of who the woman was that he interviewed. I actually thought that it might be Mrs. March at first, but I don't think it was. But he said that the Gurdjieffian students said there are two things that everyone needs, their own work and help. Ain't it the truth? Another principle of Western Bell practice is music and invocational performance. It's used to express the aim of Western Belt practitioners. Music communicates in a visceral way that's beyond mental understanding. I mean, it hits you in the body where it counts. It can evoke energies in us, as we know, and invoke a divine mood, actually, when there is real invocation. Not all bowels are singers and musicians. But those who do take on that particular practice, as we have in the Western Bell tradition, with like rock and roll, which might be considered heretical, except that the bells that we met from India just seem to embrace that entirely. The flexibility was pretty, pretty amazing. There's focus on a teacher who offers a transformative influence, offered heart to heart. Also, there's this idea of using whatever works. You know, in some ways, it seems like Lee was very eclectic. He took from here, he borrowed from there, whatever works. The practice of self-observation is integral to his teaching. And to me, it seems like he, he kind of made it his own. He saw what would serve his students and used that. In our tradition, there are conditions or basic practices to align the mind, body, and emotions, to be receptive to the teaching. The three centers. And that creates a matrix in the body for being receptive to the influence of the teacher and the communication of the, of the lineage and the tradition. And then there are core practices, which he didn't speak about some of them for decades. He talked about them right at the beginning when he began teaching for a while, and then he stopped. Because I think that we weren't ready to be able to use some of those. And then in the 90s, began speaking about some of them, including 
a, a kind of practice which is similar to Tonglen, breathing in and breathing out suffering. I'll maybe end with this. A picture is worth a thousand words, right? Our lineage includes Swami Papa Ramdas, Yogi Ram Sarat Kumar. Oh, I have another picture of him. I think I want to show you this one. And two pictures of Lee. One when he was younger, and then one when he's older. So there's no lineage holder in our school. The community is the body of the teacher. The community provides the influence of the teacher. Actually, there are teachers who say that after their death, their influence continues. And I know that that is true. Shirdi Sai Baba, a great master in India, said, my bones will speak to you. And they get 20,000 people a day coming to, walking past his shrine. And actually, some say, I've heard this from a, a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner, that the work begins with the death of a teacher. Hey, thanks so much. Uh, Barbara and Carl, any comments you would like to make? I just was very inspired and energized and, and really grateful to hear your descriptions of your work and your teachers and your traditions. I want to say something about the, um, the Tibetan tradition. The Tibetan tradition of the Buddha Dharma is Vajrayana, and uh, it's called the resultant vehicle. Um, and it's called the resultant vehicle because it takes the end for the path. It takes the purpose of the path for the path. It takes the ultimate truth to which the path leads us as the path that we walk to attain that. That is why I am in this tradition and why, uh, well, I don't know if it's the only why, there are probably many reasons, but if I think of why I'm at home in this uh, Vajrayana tradition, that is the reason. Because I came in wanting the truth, wanting truth, not the truth, wanting truth. I've never really wanted anything else. I've discovered through the profound tradition of the Buddha Dharma that love and truth are a union, inseparable, and that our existence and our being are inseparably one. And the insight into the nature of reality, the true nature of reality, the end, the realization that one is holding open the door for others for, as if one's a teacher and one is grateful to one's own teacher for being able to step through that door. That is the result. It is also the ground. The path arises from that uh, unitary truth. We walk that and we attain that. That is what's meant by the resultant path. We're not looking for something along the way. All the things that are along the way are the way. They are the Mm -hmm. way. They're not other than that. It's not an additive path. It's a subtractive path in the sense that we sweep away everything that stands between us and the direct realization of truth in its naked essence. So that's what's meant by the resultant path. And I see the embodiment of that in the teachers to whom I've been given. 
And I loved the way that both of you speak about the influence of the teachers. I, I can't even use the word influence, their presence in life and after life, their presence is with me. It is with me. My guru, my root guru, I met him only once in person. But before that and after that, there's been much connection and much communication, much contact. And that's not something exotic. I think both of you have spoken to it. It's not exotic. We are we are not separate. None of us is separate from the others of us. And our teachers and the lineages of their teachings, uh, uh, which we are now a part of, those lineages are like wide open channels of blessings. The blessings are not stirred by our desiring them or supplicating them. The blessings are always pouring down. Let's use the directional down. I don't know if it has to be down, but let's use that. Um, our devotion, our longing and our devotion are what open us to receive that which is always already there. And that goes not only for what we would name grace or blessings, it also goes for the ultimate result. It always already is. And so we sweep away that which prevents us from the direct recognition of that and the direct presence with it. So I just wanted to add those few words. Thank you. Thank you, Barbara. Coral? Getting the hang of the unmute here. I feel like it when we say, God bless you or God bless someone, Something presumptuous about that for me in that how how would I speak for God that he would do that or it would do that? And that, and at the same time, I feel like I can or we can. And I, I want to honor, I want to call honor on all of you here. I want to call honor on all of you and blessings for your work and your abidance to the work. We honor the past and the past honors us. They are happy that we are working. Thank you. Some things that both of you mentioned really struck me. Both of you seem to have bought into the system. I think that we all do that at some point, like we get majority vote and we're there. I mean, you know, that's what life is about from there on in. And Carl, you said, let me rise to that. Yeah, I resonate with that. And uh, Barbara, you said, don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Absolute truth exists. And, and right now, I mean, that's the amazing thing about the teaching. It's not, it's goalless. But as I was mentioned, it, it took decades before I think we were prepared as Lee students to really like work with that more, more directly. Because there was just so much <laughs> mind stuff to, to work through. I, I would like to say that I really like this format. This was really interesting having the three of you and the different perspectives and 
And Barbara, I have a question for you. Um, contributing to a group of doing the work within a group rather than a sole practitioner. And where I have been, I am most interested in contributing to a group. But I, like you three, have had groups that you were drawn to for various reasons. And I have not had a group that I was drawn to uh, exclusively. In the Buddhist tradition, could you, could you tell me a little bit about um, the take on why or when you would join a group of people and what sorts of activities you would participate in? In the, in the Buddha Dharma, we speak of the three jewels, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Sangha is the community of practitioners. Uh, traditionally, it referred to the noble Sangha, meaning the Sangha, the community of the ordained, the monks okay. and nuns. But in our current life and, and our world, which is so much uh, conjoined, we now think of the Sangha as being the community of, of students and practitioners and the teachers as well. We're all Sangha. And um, it's interesting and reflective of your question in a way is that in the teachings that I've received, both through the, um, the tradition, the written tradition, which is very abundant in the Tibetan tradition, and also through teachings of, uh, of the lamas that I've sat with, um, the Sangha has been spoken of least of all the historical Buddha and also the, the teacher. Um, and uh, it's also the realization uh, of, of the teachings. That's the Buddha. The Dharma, uh, the teachings, the whole body of the corpus of the teachings and the, and the truth conveyed through them. And the Sangha, is, it seems to be the vehicle through which that passes into the world in some significant way. Um, his Eminence Garchen Rinpoche at one time, at one time a little Sangha was gathered with me for about 12 years here and, and he came, we invited him to come and, and we asked him to speak about Sangha because all of us felt we just really didn't know exactly what the importance of that was. And he was very clear. He, first of all, he, we were struck by the fact that he used the word in the singular uh, to say a person is a Sangha and the Sangha is also groupness, right? It's also groups, community. And he said, the Sangha is love. Oh. So Sangha is expression. Sangha is the articulation in our experience and our relationships of the, the meaning of the Buddha Dharma and the tradition that is passing through our teachers uh, and through us in, into the world that we're inhabiting and always co-creating, always in the process of co-creating. Okay, so, so there's there's a concurrency of of your experience in Buddhism. There's a there's a concurrency of all the parts. It isn't like well, you do this part, then you move to this part, then you move. <laughs> it's all one, baby. It's all one. <laughs> so groupiness is not is not my thing as a practitioner. I'm I'm in the Milarepa kind of practitioner. She give me a hut and send me away, and I'll be a happy girl. Yeah, yeah. right. But but there are powerful practices that are by their nature done in a group setting. 
Um, and many of the Vajrayana practices are that way, that they're done in a group setting. Uh, there are empowerments, initiations given in a group setting, and then practices carried out uh, in ritual form, also in group settings. But they also are undertaken by the solo practitioner. It's not either or, it's both and, and I, uh, there's a, uh, an unmistakable power in this kind of group practice. And then even for somebody like me who wants to sit solo, um, the, the, the group practices are revealed as uh, pr- profoundly transformational. They, they invoke and move uh, energies of body, speech, and mind, the three vehicles that are purified, powerfully and profoundly purified, meaning not that it's like a dirty pot that you're scrubbing, but that the obscurations are swept away and the nature of the reality, which is intrinsically pure, is revealed. And the, these, these group uh, rituals and teaching occasions are very powerful for that purpose. Sometimes we just have fun. Question um, toward Carl about music and how music is used as a vehicle. It's an open question. Thank you. Primarily two ways it was used in the Gurdjieff work. One was to accompany the movements, usually a piano. Was uh, The music was uh, a little bit different. It was more for marching and uh, moving. And the other type of music was uh, also played on the piano, generally. Uh, more, you could say, meditative, uh, which was generally played after uh, reading. And uh, we had Saturday night readings, and afterwards, the musician would get up and play several pieces on the piano. Uh, For me, the music was so powerful because it opened up that channel for me into the past because it was constructed in such a way to bring conscious attention and also bring in influences that were ancient. I think that music primarily uh, affects the emotions and the emotional portals that are to the, the you know, straight into the body. And uh, so that they are very, again, using that word visceral, they, they convey on a very uh, base level. Now, the music for the movements was, of course, to you know, cue the, the sacred dances. And the other was more of listening to self-observe and develop attention. Thank you. So there's a question from someone who's attending, but it says to everyone. So I'll kind of just pose this to everyone. Um, How do we decline human incarnation so we can reconnect to pure truth? What I would say about this is that pure truth exists now in the body, and that actually the only place to realize pure truth for us now is in the body. All the issues, the emotions, the thinking that seem to get in the way of reality, cover it over. So what we see really is our interpretation of the world instead of objective reality, to to say it like that. Different practices help us to relax and let the mind slow down like meditation so that every once in a while, we're just in the moment. 
and perhaps for that period of time connected to pure truth. And then we go along through our day and there's all these things going on, which is right. But from time to time, we can remind ourselves that we're, we're in samsara. And that's okay. We can be with that. We can accept that we're in samsara. We are never separate from pure truth. We are pure truth. We are momentarily obscured. It's, a, it's really as simple as that. So the work of the path, the work of the practitioner is to just get that fresh broom out every day that sweeps clean. Um, that's what practice is for. Also, the idea that we, this is a very unturned un, 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 phrase I've never heard before, that, that declining human incarnation as if it's a, you know, I, I get the image of, of um, the, being at a cocktail party and there's, there's things being passed on a tray. And so you're, you're offered the opportunity to have human incarnation. And so, thank you, I, I'm full or whatever. <laughs> I don't need anything right now. And so you decline human incarnation. The way I understand it uh, is, in fact, that uh, we're going to be here in in some form in the samsaric realms, and there's a whole, of course, cosmology in in many traditions, and certainly there is in the Buddhist tradition about uh, what the various forms are and how you come to each of them, and so on. But uh, human incarnation, uh, as we're experiencing it now, is we're here because we have the karma to be here. When we, if we didn't have the karma to be here, we wouldn't be here. And uh, I don't think we get to decline it just because we would like to have a, a purer experience. I think that that dualistic construction is an indicator that we better come back and have another few rounds of, of training and practice and insight into the, the union, the inseparable inborn union of a holiness and contamination, if you will. That word is not one I usually use. I don't know where it came from. But uh, that the, the inborn, the unborn union, the unborn union and the inborn uh, wholeness of purity and obscur- obscuration. It's all one. To that discussion that we were just having, I understand in several of the traditions it's stated that the opportunity of a human, specifically human incarnation, is a very high blessing because only through that that we have any possibility of becoming that fullness which is truth in reality. But I do have a question about this grounding in the body. And I wondered if you could say a little bit more about what you understand this term. Uh, Does it encompass more than this physical vehicle? Well, I think we start with our physical body. I think that it's really important to be grounded with whatever's going on for us. What I can only speak from my experience. Uh, you know, my mind is going all the time. And to develop the capacity to realize truth, I have to be able to be with what's going on for me right here in, in the body. So to me, I, I can't. I can't get real metaphysical about it. 
I have to, when I'm talking to somebody, when I'm talking to you right now, I have to breathe, have part of my attention on what's going on for me internally, and part of my attention on what's going on externally in speaking to you, and be with that. And I think through doing that, we bring ourselves back to the present, just as we do in meditation, uh, a little bit more. I mean, throughout the day, I just remind myself that this is real and, and, and kind of come back to what is actually happening. So I don't know, maybe you wanted something other, but that's what occurs to me. I'll speak to that. Um, yes, there is grounding to the body, and the body being grounded is important, especially for vata types like myself, to uh, reference the Ayurvedic system. Uh, we tend to be air types. Um, that so, has been so important, and it's almost like driving grounding rods into the ground. Okay, we have a, um, a chat to Carl. How can we access and listen to the Gurdjieffian music that you spoke of? Yes, the Gurdjieffian music is readily available on YouTube and via CD. You can find it on Amazon, I'm sure, and many other places. This is Red Hawk speaking. I wanted to relay uh, uh, just a comment about Mr. Lee's, about mixing in our school, Mr. Lee's school. I, Osho Rajneesh was my root guru, and he, of course, spoke on many masters and many teachings. When Osho died, um, I asked Mr. Lee if he would give me shelter under his shawl, and he said yes, and I've been in the Gurji Fort since 1980, and I asked Mr. Lee at that point um, if I should stop doing the Gurdjieff work, his question to me was, does it help? I said, yes. He said, please continue. And then at some point, much later, he uh, asked me to write a book on the root practices of the Gurdjieff teaching, which was self-remembering, self-observation. So that's just a brief comment on um, mixing. He wasn't against it, if it helped. 